Hello there and welcome to the No Longer Be Children podcast. I'm your host, Josiah Meyer, and we are in pursuit of a mature and stable Christian worldview. And to that end, we are looking at the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy, which is kind of the standard document for conservative evangelicals on what inerrancy is. And we're just trying to understand it, and we're trying to see what this, um, how this will inform us in our view on inerrancy and on the Bible. So, uh, the previous podcast, we talked about Catholicism, we talked about Karl Barth, and we talked about postmodernism. And uh, these are points 1, 2, 3, and 4 in the, um, the Chicago Statement. Kind of like they want to get these things out of the way first, and then they move on to, um, to definitions, and then uh, uh, to, to more the substance of the document. Now, I've moved a few things around just because uh, I kind of felt like uh, it wasn't super well organized. Um, everything is there. It's just kind of here, there, and everywhere. So as a podcast, I had a hard time jumping around. So uh, I'm going to try and, and announce which article I'm on. If I forget which one, I do apologize. Um, but I have them organized into three or four categories here. Well, no, five, sorry. So first of all, some popular ideas rejected. Uh, articles 1 to 4, definitions, uh, and I went here and there and got some articles that talk about the definitions of what inerrancy means. There's a lot of talk about the human agency and how that plays into um, inerrancy, and then what is not meant. Um, and then I've created a section here for uh, some issues or some points that um, that I have a bit of an issue with or that might be good to update um, there's been some development in the last 50 years since this was written. Um, this doesn't, yeah, so we'll, we'll get to that when we get to it. Uh, but first of all, definitions. Article 6. We affirm that the whole of Scripture and its parts, down to the very word of the original, were given by divine revelation. Divine inspiration, sorry. We deny that the inspiration of Scripture can rightly be affirmed of the whole without the parts, or of some parts, but not the whole. So you can't just say, well, I like this Scripture, but not that Scripture. You can't say the whole Bible's inspired, and then go and cherry-pick this, that, and the other that you don't agree with. Okay, that's fairly straightforward. And this very words of the original, um, this is verbal plenary inspiration. This means that... um, you can do a word study on the original Greek, the original Hebrew, and you can get back to the very words, the very heart of the message that was being communicated. Um, <clears throat> and this is important for evangelicals to know that they have a sure foundation for their preaching, for their belief. Article 11. We affirm that Scripture, having been given by a divine inspiration, is infallible, so that, far from misleading us, it is true and reliable in all matters it addresses. We deny that it is possible for the Bible to be at the same time infallible and errant in its assertions. Infallibility and inerrancy may be distinguished but not separated. So I guess somebody is trying to pull a fast one between infallibility and inerrancy. Maybe a lawyer or somebody that um, is trying to to draw a line between these two. Infallibility um, is the idea that you're a good guide, that... that the Bible is an infallible or it's, it's, it's a guide that we can follow in our life. Whereas inerrancy is, uh, the idea that there's no errors. So, you know, thinking of Lewis and Clark in hiring a guide, um, she might have been, I forget her name, but she might've made mistakes now and then, but she was an infallible guide. 
Um, and so some people might try and, and draw a line between these two words. Uh, and the writers say, no, infallibility and inerrancy may be distinguished but not separated, that the Bible is a good guide because it's inerrant. We affirm that the doctrine of inerrancy is grounded in the teaching of the Bible about inerrant inspiration. And we deny that Jesus' teaching about Scripture may be dismissed by appeals to accommodation to, or to any natural limitation of his humanity. So, um, I guess some people are saying, well, Jesus was working in a situation with Jews who thought that the Bible was um, perfect. And so when he spoke about the Bible, he spoke about it as being perfect. Um, this is a fairly unsatisfactory view because it would mean that Jesus is lying, basically. Uh, in accommodating to the people that he's speaking to. Um, and, and so the Chicago Statement just rejects that and says, look, Jesus is speaking as God about scriptures. He was not afraid to, to confront and to um, upset the cultural norms to overturn the apple cart of uh, the, the religious elites. And on this issue, he very clearly said that scriptures are, um, are inerrant and, and will never change, will never pass away. Article 16, we affirm Article 16, we affirm that the doctrine of inerrancy has been integral to the church's faith throughout its history, and we deny that inerrancy is a doctrine invented by scholastic Protestantism or is a reactionary position postulated in response to negative higher criticism. So this is one that I've definitely heard is that um, the whole idea of inerrancy that the Bible is without errors came as a result of the Protestant Reformation and and what, what they mean by scholastic Protestantism is after the Reformation, you know, there was Luther, there was Calvin, there was Zwingli, there was a big boom, you know, upset, swing away from the Catholic Church. And in the 100, 150 years after that, especially within the Calvinist Church, um, there was very quickly an ac academy um, of, uh, I mean, and there were seminaries founded, Lutheran seminaries founded, Calvinists uh, seminaries founded, and very quickly they, they developed very elaborate, very detailed theological systems um, that sometimes, uh, well, postmodern people today really don't like Calvinist theology just because it's so linear, it's so square, uh, it's it's just not squishy at all, uh, and we like squishy and organic uh, theology nowadays, um, and so. The, the claim is made that inerrancy is this Protestant, scholastic Protestant view, which already scholastic Protestantism is kind of an insult. It's kind of a pejorative way of, of describing it. Um, and therefore, we don't need to keep it, which is uh, an ad hominem attack, really. Uh, we need to look at whether this claim is legitimate, not where it came from, um, and not whether or not we we like the way that sort of theology smells, and um, or also that it's a response to, to higher criticism. So, is this a reactionary position against liberalism in the in the you know nineteenth nineteenth and twentieth centuries? Well, again, where the idea came from doesn't actually matter. That's the genetic fallacy. Um, the genetic fallacy is the mistaken belief that where an idea comes from makes it valid or invalid. That's not true. I mean, no matter who taught you the multiplication table, if it's true, it's true. If it's false, it's false. You could have learned it in all sorts of uh, bizarre and inappropriate ways. 
Um, but if it's true, it's true no matter how you learned it. Uh, and so we can't throw inerrancy just because it apparently came late and, and was a reaction to um, to something, even if it was. And, and there certainly have been a lot of work to say, look, the church throughout history has always seen the Bible as inerrant and inspired. They've just put it in different terms. The grain of truth here in this point um, is that there has been an overly rigid view of inerrancy that is actually going to be rejected by the Chicago Statement that does come out of um, our modernist worldview that we believe and, um, you know, if you're publishing a book, for example, you're going to hire a uh, professional editor. You need to hire a professional editor because it needs to be typo-free. There can be no typos in your book. And most people, when they write, they write with typos, they write with grammatical errors, they write with spelling errors all the time. But if you're writing a book, it has to be typo-free, and it's going to be proofread, it's going to be edited, it's going to be computer, you know, uh, fixed, so it's perfect. And that comes out of the modern era, that we believe everything should be perfect, everything should be crystal clear, everything should be um, clean and shiny. Well, most of human history, it hasn't been that way. And there hasn't been this expectation. And so the Chicago Statement is going to talk about that uh, very shortly. Um, and rather than jump ahead, I'm just going to leave that bug in your ear. Um, but certainly um, throughout history, Christians have always held the Bible as being without error and as being the center of our faith. Um, article 17, we affirm that the Holy Spirit bears witness to Scripture, assuring believers of the truthfulness of God's written word. We deny that this witness of the Holy Spirit operates in isolation from or against Scripture. I'm not really sure who they're speaking to here. Uh, it's possible they're talking to, like, um, hyper-Protestant or hyper-charismatic uh, uh, people or or super um, Pentecostalist people that would just say, well, God spoke to me, therefore this and this. But most Pentecostals I know would say, well, you know, God speaks to me, but I'm still reading the Bible. God still speaks through the Bible. We still evaluate God's prophecies against the Bible. So, I mean, it's true. I'm just not really sure why they have it in here. But it, it, since it's true, it's important to have it in here. All right, so now let's get to the meat of this. And I hope I haven't bored you. I hope they haven't bored you with uh, the definitions. This is, um, there haven't been any real surprises. We believe that the Bible has no errors, that it's inspired by God, that it's the foundation for our faith. Now let's talk about some really interesting stuff. Human agency. And how does that enter in? So in the previous podcast, I talked about how Karl Barth used the analogy of Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully human. Um, in the person of Jesus Christ, and said that's how scriptures are, fully human, fully divine. Um, and Karl Barth would say, therefore, scriptures are full of errors because they're human. Um, and yet God meets with us, God speaks with us. We would reject, the Chicago Statement would, would reject that, but would use a similar sort of model, um, although not saying the, the incarnation model, um, but certainly we believe, and Christians have always believed, that scriptures are written by human agents. Therefore, they have a human element to them, even though they're inspired by God. So let's look at what that means to the Chicago Statement. 
Article 7, we affirm that inspiration was the work in which God by his Spirit, through human writers, gave us his word. The origin of scripture is divine. The mode of divine inspiration remains largely a mystery to us. Isn't that amazing that a statement like this had, is, is willing to say, we don't know. We don't know exactly how it is that scriptures are both divine and human. Um, that's just there's mysteries in the Christian faith. This is one of them. How did God use human writers to write scriptures? We don't really know. Um, it's not something that has happened to us. We, we can't write about it. We can't describe what it felt like. Um, but somehow God used human people to write. We deny that inspiration can be reduced to human insight or to the heightened states of consciousness of any kind. So this is again underlying the fact that you can't just say the Bible is inspired in the same way that Raphael was inspired to to paint a painting or Michelangelo was inspired to uh, paint the Sistine Chapel. This is a different sort of inspiration. It's God using people to write his thoughts. But it leaves behind, you know, fingerprints of, of the human agency. And that's fine. That's how it's supposed to be. Article 8. We affirm that God, in his work of inspiration, utilized the distinctive personalities and literary styles of the writers whom he has chosen and prepared. We deny that God, in causing these writers to use the very words that he chose, overrode their personalities. So, if you read the Bible um, a lot, you'll get to know the writers of Scripture. Um, you'll get to know that Moses had um, an explosive temper. Uh, you'll get to know that that Paul um, had was kind of a, a hard-nosed guy that had to have it his way, and um, he he was you know very forceful in how he communicated. You'll get to know John was a very um, emotional and very uh, spiritual sort of a guy who had a big heart. Um, you'll get to know. Who else now? You'll get to know Isaiah. And, uh, well, we could go on. We could go on. But um, two examples that I can think of right off the top of my head are uh, Moses in Deuteronomy, towards the end of his life. So he's already, you know, written most of, of the Pentateuch. And then towards the end of his life, and he is just fed up after 40 years of leading God's people through the wilderness. He is fed up with them. And he's fed up with their sinfulness, and he's fed up with uh, their rebellion against him as a leader and against God. And he he stands up and he preaches probably a series of sermons, but it's collected into the book of Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy um, goes back over their history, and it repeats a lot of stuff in Exodus and Leviticus. Um, but it, it adds theological insights, and it kind of ties everything together. And something that you can really pick up if you read it with with a keen eye is that Moses is really mad as he's preaching Deuteronomy. It would be a great, you know, kind of Southern Baptist um, yelling and, and pounding the, the pulpit kind of a sermon. Um, but, you know, Moses was at this point over 100 years old and, and he had been leading the people for 40 years and he was fed up, you know. I mean, most American presidents have gray hair after just uh, eight years in office. Imagine 40 years. And, um, and so the, the human agency, the human personality that comes out, that doesn't make the scriptures less than true. 
that means it's truly human. That's, that's his personality. Again, Paul, in First and Second Corinthians, Paul really pours out his heart, especially in Second Corinthians. And um, you can see his, his bleeding heart for the church that he founded, his love for them, his anger towards them for rejecting him in some ways, and his love for them and listening to him, and, and all that human bubbling out of emotion and, and personality that's all part of it. That's all scripture because God uh, is a God who um, believes in humanity because he created us and he, he uses human agency. So that doesn't negate um, the, the divineness of scripture, the fact that, um, that there's human fingerprints on stuff. How are we doing for time here? Ooh, it's, uh, Okay. Article 9, we affirm that inspiration, though not conferring omniscience, guaranteed true and trustworthy utterance on all matters of which the biblical authors were moved to speak and write. We deny that the finitude or fallenness of these writers, by necessity or otherwise, introduce distortion or falsehood into God's word. Um, so what this statement is saying is that, um, you know, Paul certainly didn't have a full scientific worldview at the time. But that doesn't mean that when he spoke about the world, he was incorrect, that God somehow protected him from being incorrect about how he spoke about the world. Uh, as well, Jesus was, you know, he, he spoke about the world in, a, in such a way that he was correct in everything that he said. I'm just going to leave that one without comment because I probably should have put it at the end with the, the articles that... Um, that we need to talk more in depth about. But uh, we'll just leave that there for now. Uh, Article 5. We affirm that God's revelation within the Holy Scriptures was progressive. We deny that later revelation, which may fulfill earlier revelation, ever corrects or contradicts it. We further deny that any normative revelation has been given since the completion of the New Testament writing. So uh, the final statement there is, is saying that the canon is closed, that uh, new scriptures in there are not being written today, but... You know what? The last book of the Bible is Revelation. You know it's 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 all closed. There's no new scriptures being written. Interestingly, the Orthodox Church um, actually does believe that scriptures can be written today. That that there are uh, patriarchs and people in the church that are writing books that are just as important as scripture. Um, but uh, Catholics would tend not to believe that, and, and Protestants certainly would believe that the canon is closed. Also believing that um, they kind of packed a lot into this article. They could have split it up into a few, but um, God's revelation God's revelation within the Holy Scriptures was progressive. Um, so God revealed part of himself to Adam, a little bit more to Moses, or to Noah, a little bit more to Abraham, a little bit more to Moses, a little bit more to King David, more to his son Solomon, more to um, the later prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel. Until, you know, by the end of the Old Testament, he had a pretty good view of who God was and, and his heart for humanity. But then in his son, Jesus Christ, he really revealed his character and his personality, his heart. Um, and so God's continually, progressively revealing more and more and more of himself. Uh, it's led some scholars to say that um, the Judeo-Christian religion has been evolving because it, it kind of has been rising from a lower state up to a higher and higher, more 
advanced, more evolved state. But Christians would say that's progressive revelation, that God is progressively revealing more and more of himself. And we deny that later revelation um, contradicts earlier revelation. It's not a contradiction, it's just a more full revelation of what came before. And there's more on that in uh, the podcast, um, dealing with the Old Testament and when the saints done wrong, uh, is what I called it, grammatically incorrect, but I was trying to be clever. Um, so you can go li listen to that. But we believe in progressive revelation, and this helps us understand... Um, part of how the human agency interacts with um, the divine agency, that God had his people on a journey, and he revealed to to them as much as they could handle at the time, and um, and he was moving them along. And certainly if, if Moses had, had have met Paul, they, wouldn't, they probably wouldn't have agreed on a lot of things, because Paul had more revelation than Moses had. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're not both scriptures. They're at a different point in Revelation history, and we need to read them appropriately. Okay, I see that we've moved up on 20 minutes here, and uh, so I'm going to close it off here. In the next podcast, we're going to talk about what is not meant, and, um, and we're going to look at what is not meant by inerrancy, according to the Chicago Statement. And then we're going to look at some points that... Um, that I take a little bit of an issue with that uh, perhaps could be or some more difficult portions of the Chicago Statement. So until next, next time, this is Josiah Meyer for the No Longer Be Children podcast. Have a good day.